All right, folks, thank you for checking in to Mr. Larson's podcast. Um, we're going to read Chapter 6 today. It's titled Rat Hole. Please remember that Chapter 5 ended with um, Arlene and her friend. Um, her name is Trisha. Um, I believe that Arlene was getting evicted. Sharina has a new friend that she works with. Remember, Sharina is the landlord, landlord of many different apartments. And um, this new um, person that works with her, her name is Belinda. And Belinda can find houses for just about anybody because she started a business that helps people that are getting SSI and help through the government. And so that's why Sharina likes her she can put people in with rent money ASAP. And so Sharina said, hey, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity and evict Arlene because Arlene owes me money and I'm going to have someone be put into her apartment who can pay me all the money. So um, uh, chapter six is going to look at some different folks um, that live close to Lamar and also rent out one of Sharina's um Properties. Here we go. Chapter six. Um, three generations of Hingstons lived in the brownish white house on 18th and right. The one in front of Lamar's. Remember, Lamar is the one without legs. Doreen was the mother hen. Broad shouldered and broad bellied, she was a moon faced woman with glasses and dark brown freckles flecking her lighter cheeks. For as long as she could remember, she had been overweight and tended to move slowly through her days. Doreen had four children. Patrice, Natasha, CJ, and Ruby, ages 24, 19, 14, and 13. And three grandchildren from Patrice, 10-year-old Mikey and his two younger sisters, Jada, four, and Kayla, May, two. There was also a dog, Coco, a football-sized ankle biter, loyal only to Natasha. After Patrice received Sharina's eviction papers and moved herself and her children from the upper unit to the downstairs apartment where Doreen lived with Natasha, CJ, and Ruby, all eight Hingstons and Coco found themselves living together in a small cramped space. Pause. Um, we were learning about these guys um, about three chapters ago. These folks, I should say. Patrice, Natasha, and CJ responded by spending as much time as they could out of the house, walking the block in good weather or passing evenings in the back apartment playing spades with Lamar. But at night, everyone packed in. Patrice claimed the smaller of the two bedrooms. If she was going to pay half the rent, she argued, then she should get one bedroom to herself, even if it didn't have a door. In the other bedroom, Doreen and Natasha shared the bed while Ruby curled up in a chair at night. Mikey bedded down with CJ on a sheetless single mattress in the living room next to the glass table and head-high pile of clean and dirty clothes that didn't fit in the bedrooms. Patrice's daughters slept in the dining room on a single mattress. Its corners split open, exposing innards of springs and etiolid foam. I don't know what that word is. No one slept well. Natasha had a habit of kicking Doreen in her sleep, and Doreen had a habit of rolling over on Natasha or stealing Natasha's pillow and hitting her with it when she tried to tug it back. The older children often missed the early morning school bus. The little ones fell asleep at random times throughout the day. Doreen would um, come out of the kitchen to find their tiny heads resting on the table 
or some piece of clothing on the floor. It's kind of interesting to think about how important it is to have a safe place, a bed, um, somewhere comfortable so you can actually sleep. And if you don't have that, how the rest of your day and life can be you know, negatively impacted from being tired. Um, something that I remind myself often that, um, and I'm thankful that I don't have to deal with that. The worst night's sleep always came on the eve of your birthday. If you fell asleep that night, you could be sure that Patrice would sneak into your room and smear mayonnaise or ketchup on your face. For the past six years, the Hinkstons hadn't been able to celebrate Christmas. They didn't have the money. But on your birthday, you woke up smiling with goo on your face and a cake on the table. The Hinkstons loved pranking one another. Once, Natasha put pepper in Patrice's underwear. Patrice retaliated by sneaking Ruby out of the house on a day Natasha was put in charge of watching her younger sister. When Natasha noticed Ruby was gone, she spent the next several hours patrolling the neighborhood, frantically searching. The Hingston's rear door was off its hinges. The walls were pockmarked with large holes. There was one bathroom. Its ceiling sagged from an upstairs leak and a thin blackish film coated its floor. The kitchen windows were cracked. A few dining room windows had been disshelved mini blinds, had disshelved mini blinds, broken and strung out in all directions. Patrice hung heavy blankets over the windows facing the sheet, facing the street, darkening the house. A small television sat on a plywood dresser in the living room next to a lamp with no shade. After Patrice had moved downstairs, Sharina discovered that she had been pirating electricity. The meter repair bill would cost $200, and Sharina refused to pay it while Patrice was living with Doreen. I ain't incurring shit, she said. They black asses ain't gonna incur everything, and they gonna be cold this winter. It took the Hingstons a couple of months to save $200. During that time, the back of the house, including the kitchen, was without power. Everything in the refrigerator spoiled. The family ate dinners out of cans, ravioli, spaghettios. The Hingstons treated the refrigerator, sour smelling and sitting tomb-like in the kitchen, like they treated the entire apartment as something to endure, to outlast. It was how they saw the mattresses and small love seat too. Each deep burrowed with so many roaches, they planned to leave them all behind when they moved out. The roaches were there when the Hingston moved in, crawling in the sinks, the toilets, the walls, filling kitchen drawers. They were rushers, Sharina said about Jarena's family. They moved in on top of roaches. Before the Hingstons had moved into Sharina's apartment off Wright Street, they'd lived for seven years in a five-bedroom house on 32nd Street. It wasn't perfect, but it was spacious and the landlord was decent. They pooled their money to make rent, $800 a month. Patrice was serving up lunch at a fast food joint, and after dropping out, Natasha had started working too. Darina hadn't completed high school either, though she had learned to type 72 words a minute at Job Corps years back. Patrice almost finished high school, making it to the 11th grade even after having Mikey at 14, but in the end, she started working full-time to help the family stay afloat. 
At 16, Natasha began logging 12-hour shifts at Quad Graphics for $9.50 an hour, sometimes falling asleep on the printing machines. They didn't ask her age, and she didn't offer it. Doreen's monthly income was $1,124, $437 from a state-funded child support supplement, and $687 from SSI, which she received for an old leg injury. In eighth grade, she had broken her hip on Easter Sunday. Her new wedge high heels did her in, and the fracture had never quite healed. Maybe it would have if her father had rushed her to the hospital instead of keeping her home for several days. The old man hated doctors. When his knees began going out, he just sawed off a kitchen table leg and used it for a cane. On 32nd Street, the Hingstons became a neighborhood feature. The children ran in and out of a neighbor's homes, and from her front steps, Doreen got to know the other families on her block. She would rock and laugh with the grandmothers and yell at the neighborhood boys when they terrorized stray cats. When summer arrived, the children would buy bottle rockets from a neighbor and shoot them off the street. Every so often, Doreen would host a party and invite everyone. Then, one August day in 2005, Doreen turned on the television and saw New Orleans underwater. A muddy expanse filled the city, and black bodies bobbed past folks on rooftops. She immediately called her best friend, Fanny, asking her to come over. Doreen and Fanny were shocked by what they saw in the news. This is a total disgrace, Doreena remembered thinking. Doreena. After a few restless nights, Doreen felt called to do something more for the flood victims than fret and pray. She left Patrice in charge and boarded a southbound bus with Fanny. She was 41. Patrice was 20. It wasn't like her to do something like this. She was a soft humming stoop sitter. I don't go no further than my front porch, Doreen said. But there were moments along the way when she struck out against life's currents, like the January 1998, when she hurriedly packed up and moved the family to Illinois without telling anyone. She needed to get away from CJ and Ruby's father, who would go on to serve a long sentence upstate. After two days on the bus, Doreen and Fanny found themselves in Lafayette, Louisiana. They joined dozens of other volunteers, passing out blankets and serving food. And do you guys might remember this happening? Maybe not. You were real young. But um, there was a hurricane that um, hit New Orleans really, really hard in 2005. And flooded the city. As some of you know, um, New Orleans actually is below sea level. Um, and there was a couple TV shows. Uh, Treme, a couple other things, um, popular culture, um, had some shows about that hurricane. The trip caused the Hingstons to fall a month behind in rent, but they had been long-term tenants and their landlord was loyal. He wasn't sweating me, Doreen called. The landlord told her to pay him back when she could. Doreen gave him extra when she had it, a hundred here, a hundred there. She worked to clear her debt but then something would happen and she'd come up short. Months passed, then years. One early spring night in 2008, two neighborhood boys on 32nd Street shot at each other. Bullets zipped through the Hinkles, the Hinkson's front door, shattering its win window. Natasha, who was 17 at the time, was sweeping up the glass when the police arrived. They asked to take a look inside. To hear the Hinkstons tell it, the officers ransacked the house 
looking for guns or drugs. Patrice speculated that a neighbor associated with one of the shooters had pinned the crime on the three young men who were staying with the Hingstons at the time. Patrice's and Natasha's boyfriends, as well as a cousin. All the police found was a mess. Dishes piled high in the sink, overflowing trash cans, flies. The Hingstons were not the tidiest family, and to make matters worse, they had thrown a party the night before. There were less superficial problems, too, like the plywood board the landlord had haphazardly nailed over a sagging bathroom ceiling. Perhaps because of the mess, or because Patrice began snapping at the officers around 2 a.m., or because they believed the Hingstons had played a role in the shooting, whatever the case, the police called Child Protective Services, who called the Department of Neighborhood Services, DNS, who dispatched a building inspector, who issued orders to the landlord, who filled out a five-day eviction notice, citing unpaid rent. Doreen had only managed to get halfway caught up when the shooting happened. There had never been a need to rush. After the court commissioner stamped their eviction judgment, the Hingstons needed to find another place quickly. They searched on their own, but without a car or the internet, their reach was limited. They sought help from social workers, and one put them in touch with Sharina. She showed them the apartment off Wright Street, and they hated it. I wouldn't advertise it to a blind person, Patrice said. But any place, the family figured, was better than the street or a shelter, so they took it. Sharina handed Doreen the keys on the spot, along with a rent receipt dashed off on a scra scrap of paper. Doreen tucked the scrap with paid, paid 1,100 rent plus security pot deposit into her Bible. Poor families were often compelled compelled to accept substandard housing in the harried aftermath of eviction. Milwaukee renters whose previous move was involuntary were almost 25% more likely to experience long-term housing problems than other low-income renters. Doreen said she took Sharina's apartment because her family was desperate. But we ain't gonna be here long. Eviction had a way of causing not one move, but two a forced move into degrading and sometimes dangerous housing and an intentional move out of it. But the second move could be a while coming. The Hingstons began looking for a new house soon after moving into Sharina's place, calling the numbers on rent signs and leafing through apartment listings in the Red Book, a free glossy found at most inner city corner stores. But their previous move had left them exhausted and Doreen's fresh eviction record wasn't helping matters. Patrice soon moved into the second floor unit upstairs, and everyone breathed easier for a time. <coughs> Fall arrived, and the Hingstons settled into the neighborhood, but always considered their stay temporary, even as the months rolled by, one after the other. It wasn't like on 32nd, where Doreen had made it a point to get to know her neighbors and watch over the neighborhood boys. At the time of Patrice's eviction, six months after the family had relocated to 18th and Wright, the only neighbor Doreen knew by name was Lamar, and his name was all she really knew about him. I don't even go to anybody's house like I used to, Doreen said about her new neighborhood. I used to get up and go to visitors. Now I just stand around. When winter set in, weeks would pass without Doreen so much as stepping outside. The public piece 
The sidewalk and street piece of cities is not kept primarily by the police, necessary as police are. It is kept primarily by an intricate, almost unconscious network of voluntary controls and standards among the people themselves, and enforced by the people themselves. So wrote Jane Jacobs in, quote, The Death and Life of the Great American Cities. Jacobs believed that a prerequisite for this type of healthy and engaged community was the presence of people who simply were present, who looked after the neighborhood. She has been proved right. Disadvantaged neighborhoods with higher levels of collective efficacy, the stuff of loosely linked neighbors who trust one another and shared expectations about how to make their community better, had lower crime rates. A single eviction could destabilize multiple city blocks. Not only the block from which a family was evicted, but also the block to which it begrudgingly relocated. In this way, displacement contributed directly to what Jacob slums, churning environments with high rates of turnover and even higher rates of resentment and disinvestment. The key link in a perpetual slum is that too many people move out of it too fast, and in the meantime, dream of getting out. With Doreen's eviction, Doreen's eviction, 32nd Street lost a steadying presence, someone who loved and invested in the neighborhood, who contributed to making the block safer. But Wright Street didn't gain one. That's a really interesting point, you guys. Um, the impact that an eviction can have on a neighborhood, just one eviction, can take away a solid person with, you know, a love for people and, and, and a safe neighborhood and alter it forever. And then the neighborhood in which that person moves to is also impacted and altered and not in a positive way in this case, because Doreen doesn't want to get to know her neighbors because she doesn't want to live there forever. She doesn't like the neighborhood. Impact of an eviction. Ruby, CJ, and Mikey had kept on their school uniforms, oversized white t-shirts and black jeans. While they took turns at the front window watching for the lunch truck, three times a week, a local church delivered sack lunches to the neighborhood. This day, Ruby was the one to spot it. Lunch truck, she yelled, bounding outside with the others. The kids returned with a bag for everyone. They passed them out without peeking inside because that would ruin the game. Green apples were swapped for red ones, Fritos for sun chips, apple juice for fruit punch. I'll give you two juices, Natasha offered Ruby. For an Oreo cake? Ruby asked. After thinking it over, she shook her head no. Ruby, you suck. Ruby flashed a white smile and started bouncing from leg to leg. Her Ritalin was wearing off. Some nights after its effects had um, dissipated completely, she and Mikey would land backflips off the mattress in the living room. Natasha pouted. At 19, she was six years older than Ruby, but acted more like the oldest child than the youngest adult. While Patrice had only just begun adolescence when she found herself a mother, Natasha balked at the thought of having kids. They messy, they dirty, she said and you don't know if they're going to be ugly or pretty, so hell no. I'm living free and independent. Natasha partied with the boys at Lamar's house, and in the summertime, sauntered around the neighborhood barefoot. She was light-skinned like Patrice, red-boned, even though they had different fathers. Men in cars would slow down and crane their necks. Sometimes old ladies would slow down too, and after, offer Natasha shoes with pity-filled eyes. That always made Patrice chuckle. 
After reading aloud the prayers, the church ladies had slipped inside the white sacks. The Hingstons settled into their sack dinner and began a conversation about words they had a hard time pronouncing. Royal. Turquoise. Anything was a welcome distraction from the stench and state of the house. In the kitchen and bathroom, things had gotten so bad that Doreen was considering calling Sharina and Quentin. She loathed calling them. The Hingston family was slow to admit it, but their landlords intimidated them. Quentin is a grouch, Patrice often complained. When Quentin was in the apartment, he made comments about how bad it smelled. If he brought workers over to fix the problem, he often left behind discarded materials, which Doreen and Patrice took as a sign of disrespect. It's like you're his maid, said Patrice. Whether Quentin intentionally behaved this way to discourage tenants from calling him with housing problems was hard to say, but it had that effect. When Doreen phoned Sharina to complain, she often found herself being complained about. Every time we call about something, Doreen said, she tries to blame it on us and say we broke it. I'm tired of hearing it, so we just fix it every time it breaks. Fixing it often meant getting on without it. The sink was the first thing to get stopped up. After it stayed that way for days, Ruby and Patrice took to washing dishes in the bathtub. But they weren't able to catch all the food scraps from going down the drain, and pretty soon, concrete-colored water was collecting in the bathtub, too. So the family began boiling water on the kitchen stove and taking sponge baths. Afterwards, someone would dump the pot water down the toilet and grab the plunger, causing a small colony of roaches to scamper to another hiding spot. You had to plunge hard. It usually took a good five minutes before the toilet would flush. When the toilet quit working, the family began placing soiled tissue into a plastic bag to be tossed out with the trash. When Doreen finally did call Sharina about the plumbing, she could not get a hold of her. After a week of voice messages, Sharina called back, explaining that she and Quentin had been away in Florida. They had recently purchased a three-bedroom vacation condo there. In response to Doreen's complaint about the plumbing, Sharina reminded her tenants that she was breaking the term, terms of her lease by allowing Patrice and her children to live with her. To Patrice, it was deja vu. Before moving upstairs, she had inspected the unit. It needed a lot of work. The lint gray carpet was worn thin and filthy. The ceiling in the kids' bedrooms was drooping. The balcony door was unhinged, and the balcony itself looked like it would collapse if you tossed a sack of flour on it. But Sharina promised to attend to those things. Landlords were always to rent units without, with property code violations, and even units that did not meet, quote, basic habitability requirements. Habitability as long as they are upfront about the problems. Patrice took Sharina at her word and handed her $1,100, the first month's rent and security deposit. But the repairs came slowly. Patrice's bathtub stopped draining, but Sharina didn't return her calls. That time, she and Quentin were away on vacation. Patrice went two months without a working sink. When Patrice discovered a large hole in one of the walls, Sharina gave her a pamphlet about how to keep her children safe from lead paint. When the door came off the hinges, she sent her dope man over to, over to our house to fix it, Patrice complained. Things came to a head. I'm going to get an attorney and sue you, Patrice shouted. Go ahead, Sharina laughed. 
but my money is longer than yours. If I'm giving you my money, why ain't my stuff fixed? The next month, Patrice tried a different approach. If Sharina wouldn't respond with the rent when the rent was paid, maybe she would respond when it wasn't. Patrice gave Sharina half the rent and said she would give the rest after she completed the promised repairs. As it was, the rent took 65% of Patrice's income. It was hard to give up such a big chunk of her paycheck to live in such conditions. Patrice, Patrice's plan backfired. Sharina refused to work on Patrice's, Patrice's place unless she delivered her rent in full. To Patrice, it felt like a catch-22. If she was paid up, Sharina often didn't answer the phone until the first of the month rolled around again. If she withheld rent, Sharina refused to fix anything until she paid. I'm not going to rush and bust my ass to take care of a bunch of issues, and you didn't pay me all my money, Sharina said. Still, Patrice wanted to stay. She liked living above her mama and thought that the apartment could be nice. Then, Patrice's manager at Cousins Subs cut back her hours, and she lost what little leverage she had. After Sharina served her the eviction notice, Patrice couldn't catch up. She promised to give Sharina her tax refund, but by that time, it was too late. Belinda, the payee and Sharina's new best friend, had called asking for a place, and Sharina jumped at the opportunity. Patrice's place would be available in a few weeks. Sharina promised. After two months without a working bathtub or sink and with a barely working toilet, Doreen decided to call a plumber herself. Having paid for a plumber the first time things got stopped up, Sharina was not keen to do so again. And after what had happened at 32nd Street, Doreen knew better than to call a building inspector. The plumber charged $150 to snake out the pipes. He concluded that the plumbing system was old and vulnerable and advised Doreen to catch everything she could from going down the sink. The first thing Doreen did after the man left was to run a hot bath and soak in it for an hour. Doreen decided to deduct $150 from the rent. When Sharina responded by saying that would earn her an eviction notice, Doreen went ahead and withheld all the rent. If she was going to get evicted, she might as well save her money to put it toward the next move. It was a common strategy among cash-strapped renters. Because the rent took almost all of their paycheck, families sometimes had to initiate a necessary eviction that allowed them to save enough money to move to another place. One landlord's loss was another, another's gain. If Doreen had to move, she knew she wouldn't be able to find a much cheaper place, especially for three adults and five children. At the time, medium, median rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Milwaukee was $600. 10% of units rented at or below $480, and 10% rented at or above $750. A mere $270 separated some of the cheapest units in the city from some of the most expensive. That meant that rent in some of the worst neighborhoods was not drastically cheaper than rent in much better areas. For example, in the city's poorest neighborhoods, where at least 40% of families lived below the poverty line, median rent for a two-bedroom apartment was only $50 less than citywide median. Sharina put it like this, a two-bedroom is a two-bedroom is a two-bedroom. This had long been the case. When tenants began appearing in New York City in the mid-1800s, rent in the worst slums was 30% higher than in uptown. 
In the 1920s and 30s, rent for dilapidated housing in the black ghettos of Milwaukee and Philly and other northern cities exceeded that for better housing in white neighborhoods. As late as 1960, rent in major cities was higher for blacks than for whites in similar accommodations. The poor did not crowd into slums because of cheap housing. They were there, and this was especially true of the black poor, simply because they were allowed to be. Landlords at the bottom of the market generally did not lower rents to meet demand and avoid the costs of all those missed payments and evictions. There were costs to avoiding those costs, too. For many landlords, it was cheaper to deal with the expense of eviction than to maintain their properties. It was possible to skimp on maintenance if tenants were perpetually behind, and many poor tenants would be perpetually behind because their rent was too high. Tenants able to pay their rent in full each month could take advantage of legal protections designed to keep their housing safe and decent. Not only could they summon a building inspector without fear of eviction, but they also had the right to withhold rent until certain repairs were made. But when tenants fell behind, these protections dissolved. Tenants in um, arrears were barred from withholding or escrowing rent, and they tempted eviction if they filled a report with a building inspector. It was not that low-income renters didn't know their rights. They just knew those rights would cost them. I think calling a building inspector is only going to cause more problems, Doreen told Patrice. It does, Patrice answered. She can't put us out if we call a building inspector. She can put us out if we call a building inspector. What Patrice meant was that Sharina could evict them because Doreen had violated the terms of the lease. Patrice and her kids were unauthorized boarders, and that she likely would if DNS were found. 